Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. Unbelievable, huh, Mark? This is just one more step in the march towards a complete takeover of all of our basic rights at the federal level. Mark, great to be with you again on Informed Dissent. Uh, You can find us on informeddissentmedia.com where we post all our podcasts. And uh, once again, there's so much to talk about and so little time. You know, it's interesting, the mandate, the edict that came down from the president. Of course, if you're greater than 100, you got to comply. If you're at 99, somehow uh, COVID passes your uh, place of business. And uh, not mentioned, of course, is that uh, the United States Postal Service is exempt from this law. And of course, all the members of Congress and the judiciary are exempt from this uh, rule as well. So, you know, listen, you know, th- it's funny. Here, here's what this reminds me. There was, a, there was a meme or a little quote that I saw a week or so back. It was about the Holocaust, and it was a, an old, old interview. Uh, and it was these uh, two old folks that, were, that had these yellow stars on their chest, and somebody was asking them, how did, it, uh, how did it get to this point, and why did people comply? And they talked about that it didn't all happen at once, that there were just small incremental steps, and at each step, they would say to each other, well, you know, it's only this, and if we just comply, it'll get better, and then it's only that, and if we just comply, it'll get better, and they just want to take our guns away, what's the big deal? And they want to take our property rights away. What's the big deal? And the next thing you know, they're being shipped off to concentration camps. And it sort of feels like that right now. Not concentration camps, of course, but it's these incremental steps toward totalitarian control. And we're seeing it here in California, of course, where we live, but it's occurring across the country. Um, The president certainly is playing a role in this with his edicts and his control over the federal uh, employees and the federal workforce. Uh, We know it's happening in the military now as well. And where does it stop? Where does it actually stop? And at what point do people stand up and say, we're not going to take it anymore and we're no longer going to comply? I've been waiting for that moment for 19 months at this point. And I wish I had an answer to that question because that would end all of this. The incrementalism is the most insidious aspect. If, let's say a year ago, we had been told by the president that all employees in businesses greater than 100 in number, the entire U.S. military, and all children down to soon to be age six all had to get a vaccine, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Everybody would have just uh, thumbed their noses at it and probably uh, pushed to remove this man from office. But since then, he has repeatedly and consistently told us that none of this is happening or will happen. 
As recently as a few months ago, he said that vaccinations would never become mandatory or mandated by the federal government or by any government. And yet he did it yesterday. So I am very concerned that the fact that this is occurring at a ratcheting pace rather than all at once is allowing people to stay asleep and to not actually get uh, riled up enough to actually go out and do something and to take action. It's like the, uh, you know, the slow boiling frog. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are really not aware of how the temperature is rising day to day. And by the time they realize it, they're going to be cooked. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) They are being cooked. They actually are being cooked. Um, I do see some, you know, some pockets of resistance in local schools where parents are standing up against some of these mandates. You know, when you go after the children, the mama bears uh, tend to take notice and, uh, and, and they'll fight back, no doubt about it. Um, but the problem is with these large corporations, some of them are compliant and agree with the mandates. Others don't want to push back for fear of their business being shut down. There are, of course, there are of course exceptions to that. But the vast majority are ready to comply, and they're putting into place various testing and compliance mechanisms uh, to ensure that um, people are behaving the way the government is telling them to. The problem here is this, this idea that there's a national emergency that warrants executive action is just ridiculous and doesn't make any sense. And listen, I'm not downplaying COVID. I mean, listen, I take care of COVID patients almost on a daily basis, and it's a difficult illness for some, especially if they're not um, implementing uh, early treatment when they first get sick. So it's a real illness that should be taken seriously. Uh, It's hurting a lot of people, but the path forward is not top-down bureaucratic tyranny. The path forward is freedom innovation and market forces that will allow this to play out and to do so with the least amount of damage both to our economy and to people's health. We've known about a path forward uh, for probably it's been a year since the great Barrington Declaration came out. Um, Lead author is um, Harvey Risch and uh, Oh, what are the other guys? Jay uh, um, Bhattacharya. Bhattacharya. Anyways, their, their idea was this idea of focused protection. That is, the statistics are so clear as to who this illness affects. And it's not the young. It's not the healthy. It's people that are older that have underlying uh, predisposing conditions. So the Great Barrington Declaration said, let's focus on the people that are at most at risk. And let's protect them aggressively, isolate them in some cases if we need to. You could even argue that maybe there's a subsection that would benefit from vaccination. But for everybody else that's at very low risk, and for everybody else, especially now that we have seen study after study after study, despite what the media tells you, of repurposed medication used early that can affect the outcome of this disease, Um, The path forward is that. Make early treatment available for everyone. Educate physicians across the country how to do that. 
and protect those that are most vulnerable. The problem when you have a top-down approach, first of all, there's plenty of people that are going to push back almost instinctively when the government says, do X, you immediately want to do Y. Um, there are so many people now that are distrustful and, and reasonably so uh, of government mandates, whether it's from the federal government or state governments, that they almost instinctively reject those mandates. And if the goal ultimately is to protect the most amount of people, ultimately get to herd immunity, allow treatment options for everybody, the way to do that certainly is not top-down, tyrannical rule uh, by our leaders, unfortunately. Well, I would even argue further and say that the expansion through coercion and force of this universal vaccination program is actually impeding the process of ending this pandemic. And it's, it's impeding it for several reasons. One, just on a medical level, is that it is essentially making it impossible for us to achieve herd immunity because people who receive these vaccines do not develop as robust of an immune response when they do get infected because the vaccine, it's not really a vaccine, it's actually a therapeutic. It does not actually prevent the infection from occurring in the body, which is the definition of a vaccine. It simply reduces the severity of symptoms. So that word is actually a misnomer, and even the CDC doesn't disagree with that at this point. It does not prevent the spread of infection or contagion, also something that a vaccine is required to do. CDC doesn't disagree with that. It's basically a therapeutic introduction of medication, which, as you just said, is being blocked. All therapeutics are being blocked except the vaccine. So if your goal is to actually achieve good health across the population and the pandemic and achieve herd immunity, forcing vaccines on people rather than giving them the option of treatment is actually getting in the way. And a second point I want to make, which I think is never, ever brought up except in very skeptical media circles, is the following. If the actual motivation, the true sincere motivation for this Max Vaccine program were to keep people healthy, we would be talking about testing every single person who's offered a vaccine for natural immunity before getting the shot. 100%. And that has never come up, ever. No. And that, to me, belies the lie that this vaccine program is actually about public health. It is not. It is about control and the expansion of power, period. Yeah, you're not kidding. And there's been study after study after study that has now shown that natural immunity is superior to vaccine-induced immunity. There's a large study out of Israel that looked at this and showed clearly that if you, are, if you have recovered from COVID, the natural infection, then your immune system is strong, uh, broad-based, and very likely long-lasting and more effective than vaccine immunity. Um, but unfortunately, nobody seems to care. And the reason why they don't care is because it's inconvenient and it slows down the rollout of the vaccine. So that's why they say it doesn't matter whether you've had natural immunity or not, that everybody should get vaccinated. There's a healthcare system that came out. As a matter of fact, I just read this today uh, where they are allowing, it's the only one I've seen of with this vaccine mandate. Uh, that they are allowing for natural immunity uh, to be part of the equation. And I, I think that's a good thing. And I, I hope more and more 
uh, people look at this and, uh, and show that, in fact, natural immunity is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Uh, a lot of people have it. And if you have antibodies and you've recovered from the vaccine, from, not from the vaccine, from the disease, that you should be good. There's no reason to vaccinate somebody. In fact, I would argue that vaccinating somebody after they recover from natural COVID, you end up presenting yourself with the risk of the vaccine with very little, if any, benefit whatsoever. And I think that's an area that many physicians, I would hope, would agree with, that patients should agree with, agree with, and that's something really that we should rally behind. The idea that natural immunity is protective, should be honored, and should be one of uh, several reasons for uh, not needing uh, a vaccine. I don't know if you heard this, Jeff, but just in the last couple of days, someone asked St. Anthony Fauci that very question. What do we do with people who have natural immunity, given that there are no exceptions for mass forced vaccines across the board down to essentially the moment of birth? And his answer was telling. He said, I have no response to that question. I know. I know. It's crazy. I found the article that I was looking for. This is the Detroit News. Spectrum health workers can use natural immunity as vaccine mandate exemption. The West Michigan hospital system uh, will allow somebody who tests positive for antibodies within the last three months. I, I think once you've recovered and you have antibodies, there's really no reason to do any testing. But nonetheless, at least they have some uh, metrics. Uh, while we still recommend vaccination for people with prior COVID-19 infection, according to this new research, there is increasing evidence that natural infection affords protection from COVID-19 reinfection and severe symptoms for a period of time, the statement says. So that's good news. I hope it's reported widely, and I hope other corporations and healthcare systems will look at that and maybe use that as a template. You know, we were talking about early treatment, and I want to share something. This is uh, literally today it came in, and this was a patient, a patient whose husband was ill, and I was helping to navigate the hospital system. They were very frustrated that the doctors in the hospital were not using any of these repurposed medication protocols. They had them on oxygen and, uh, and they were about to intubate and uh, they, weren't being, they weren't willing to even listen to reason. So I had them print out one of the hospitalized protocols, meet with the actual doctor, uh, and then uh, and then review that and ask, and if not, find an infectious disease uh, specialist to help out. So here's the, here's the text they sent me uh, not long ago. Uh, we spoke last weekend about my husband. I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the advice you gave me. I did exactly what you advised. I printed out data and studies of ivermectin from the FLCCC website and so thankful that the doctor I spoke to was open and receptive. Only his hands were tied by the hospital administration and he couldn't use it. He admitted the med was political and hospital administration won't allow it. Then I asked if he knew of any infectious disease doctor that would be willing to see them. Uh, he said he would speak with three and discuss our requests. 30 minutes later, the infectious disease doctor came in uh, to examine my husband. He was very careful not to suggest the medication and asked what exactly I was looking for. 
I was straight with him. He discussed the studies that were small and not protocol for the hospital. He didn't think he could find a pharmacy willing to fill. Well, that evening, the ivermectin was delivered and given to my husband. Praise God. The greatest news is by the next morning, his O2 levels were stable and above 95% on CPAP. He didn't need to be intubated. Yesterday, a good day too, and last night, they had begun to lower his O2 and put, uh, put, him on, uh, put on by 10% and more. They did give uh, ivermectin in conjunction with starting up on steroids and increasing uh, from 6 to 10 milligrams. Praising God and wanted to express my deepest, sincerest gratitude for your advice. Now listen, this is one anecdotal story. Uh, of a success with ivermectin. I'm not suggesting this should be generalized to everyone, but I have seen this happen now over and over and over again. The introduction of some of these repurposed medications used together that are keeping people out of the hospital and some that are in the hospital getting them better quicker. I just spent four days at a roundtable conference outside the United States with seven doctors, three of whom have treated over 1,000 patients. And they've been primarily treating them with a combination of ivermectin and other repurposed drugs like steroids, like hydroxychloroquine, including the man who is in charge of FLCCC, Dr. Pierre Corey. He was one of the three uh, or four physicians that that I was with. And Dr. Brian Tyson, who, as far as I know, is the man who has uh, treated the most in terms of pure raw numbers of uh, infected patients in the United States. I think he's up to 4,000 right now. And he hasn't lost a single patient, not a single one, under, I think, age 75 or 80. And I think you go up uh, to, to 80 and he's lost one and that person died the day that the person showed up in his clinic. So you take that anecdote you just read and you multiply that out by four doctors times between one to 4,000 patients. Now you're looking at 10,000 individual anecdotes. Those are no longer anecdotes. Right. Th- that is evidence. It may not be a randomized uh, double placebo-controlled trial, but those are useless for this type of, of process because it takes two to three weeks to enter in people into those studies. And by then, the medication is of no longer, uh, no longer valuable. It has to be given early, as we keep emphasizing on this, on this show. So when you have doctors who treat patients early, you treat them with repurposed medications, the right time, the right dose, the patients get better. And they get better at rapid and high numbers, far, far, far greater than putting somebody on oxygen or putting them on a vent. So I, I don't think that this really can be disputed by any intellectually honest person anymore, that early treatment works. And it works not only to reduce the, the symptoms of the disease, but it is safe, it is cheap, and it is available. Yeah, the, the challenge is finding early treatment, and that's the big challenge in the United States. There are not enough doctors that know how to do this and too many patients that need help, and it's very, very challenging. Um, I recommend, if you're listening that you find a doctor before you need a doctor. And there are a variety of ways you can do that. Uh, America's Frontline Doctors uh, has a link to telemedicine doctors. Uh, it's a bit frustrating, I know, because they're receiving something like four to 5,000 requests a day, and there's not enough doctors to meet that demand. Uh, there are several other resources as well. Uh, myfreedoctor.com, 
uh, is Stella Emanuel's telemedicine group. If you go on my website, rxforliberty.com, under COVID treatment, I list three different sources for telemedicine uh, doctors. Um, start by asking your own local doctor whether they're comfortable prescribing ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine if you get COVID. You might be surprised that they have some knowledge. Uh, you could even print out the FLCCC protocol and show them and ask for prescriptions before you need it. If they're not willing to do that, ask friends and family to see if they know any doctors in your local area that will do that. And then as a last resort, you can go on one of these telemedicine groups uh, and, and use it before you need it. There's nothing that induces fear more than uh, waking up and you've got a fever and chills and you think you have COVID, but you don't know how to, you don't know who to turn to uh, to get help. So get help before you need it. Find a doctor that you know you can rely on uh, to treat this illness. It's getting harder and harder from my perspective to find ivermectin. Uh, and find pharmacies that are willing to dispense it. Same thing with hydroxychloroquine. There are still some locally in Southern California, and I'm sure they're available elsewhere. Uh, I called in ivermectin recently to a pharmacy in Tennessee, and I'm doing this all over the country. Often the mom and pop pharmacies um, that, are, uh, that are local uh, will do that, um, and the, there are compounding pharmacies that will do that as well. Um, so find it before you need it and try not to live your life in fear. And one way to take away that fear is to be prepared just in case COVID comes knocking. And then in the meantime, Mark, I uh, just read, this is from the Defender, Children's Health Defense. That's Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s um, uh, uh, outlet. Uh, and he curates the VAERS data on a weekly basis. And this is hot off the press from Friday. VAERS data released Friday by the CDC data by the CDC, not random data, this is data that the CDC and the FDA runs the VAERS website, show a total of over 600,000 reports of adverse events from all age groups following COVID vaccines, including 14,506 deaths um, and 88,171 serious injuries. This is between December 2020 and September 3rd, 2021. Now, this is a passive reporting system. Study a few years ago looked at this system uh, and concluded that only about 1%, maybe up to 10% of all vaccine injuries are even reported to the system. So you need to multiply likely by a factor of you know, 50 or 100 even um, if this only represents 1%. And then if you say, well, you know, maybe these deaths aren't actually vaccine related, maybe only a small percentage. So we've got about 14,000 deaths that are reported. If that's only 1% and you only think about 1% of these are accurate, that's still 14,000 and change deaths, even if it only represents 1% of that that's reported and only 1% of it is actually accurate. But we're not, we're not hearing these numbers anywhere in the mainstream media. And it's not to scare people or to be anti-vax or to speak ill of the vaccine. But what's important from my perspective is people know the truth. What is the data? What is the risks? What are the benefits? What are the potential complications? And compare that to what are your own personal risks as far as COVID. If you're young and healthy, the data shows that you're at very, very low risk. 
um, and you make your own assessment without coercion, without being forced, uh, without mandates, you're in the best position to make decisions for your own health. You shouldn't be mandated to do anything from a government entity. Um, so I think it's important that we tell the truth as best as we can. None of this data is perfect, but it's important that the public see it, uh, understand it, and then are able to make an informed decision about what they want to do for their own health. Well, on, on that note, you say that the CDC itself is reporting a much, much, much higher number of adverse events, meaning side effects, hospitalizations, and deaths than what is being reported in the media. They're also downgrading the risk of this infection in children. They just reported a hospitalization update of the percentage of children under 18 that died from the infection, and it's exceedingly low. Out of 73 million American children, only eight children have died in hospital settings purportedly due to this virus. Yet they're so coming after high, children. They're coming after the kids. Now, based on what you just said, based on what I just said, how can anyone in their right mind honestly justify the expansion of forced vaccination into the child population? Just this week, LAUSD, which is the LA Unified School District, the second largest school district in the entire United States, voted 6-0, 6-0 unanimously to force every single child in the LAUSD school system down to age 12 to get a vaccination. And within the next 90 days, they want to bring it down to age 6. So that means essentially K through 12, every single child in Los Angeles County that goes to a public school is going to get this shot. And these kids are not dying of infection from the virus, but they are getting increasingly sick, especially now that most of these kids have already been infected and recovered, of complications such as myocarditis, yep. which is a serious, chronic, it's not acute, it's a chronic and life-altering heart condition where the heart tissue dies because of an infection from the virus or from, in this case, the vaccinations, yep. which has the spike proteins which attack the heart tissue. In fact, it is now more dangerous, according to the statistical analyses that I've read, for children to receive a vaccination than it is for them to be infected by the virus itself. Yeah. There's that's, a that's astounding. There's a researcher out of the University of California, Davis. Her name is Dr. Tracy Hogue, H-O-E-G. And the conclusion of her research was exactly that. More likely to land teenage boys in the hospital than COVID-19 itself. Um, so risk versus benefit, the risk of the vaccine is greater, especially in young teenage boys than, uh, than the disease itself. L listen, people just need to know the truth and make a decision. It doesn't make sense to me to vaccinate a kid that is at very, very low risk of the disease that we're trying to prevent using an investigational product with limited long-term safety studies. We don't know what the long-term consequences are in a young person, fertility problems, uh, et cetera. It doesn't make sense to do that, yet they're coming after our children, LA Unified School District, and this is spreading across the country uh, like the virus itself. It's a, it's a pandemic of fear, and it's a pandemic of tyranny. Just as we said at the outset, we're coming from the top at the federal level 
to force vaccinate all the adults and we're coming at the bottom up from the local districts in counties and states across the country to force vaccinate the kids. This is a, a vice clamp that all Americans are being put into that has no positive medical and health outcome. And it is not about that. As we've been discussing on this show and others, early treatment is the most effective way to reduce sickness and death from this virus. It is not vaccinating healthy people, particularly those who have already been infected and who don't need this vaccine. It is wrong, it is unethical, and it should be fought at every single level of government possible. Yeah, I agree. And the best way that parents can fight this is simply remove your kids from government schools. Get them out. There are compelling reasons to do that for the COVID rules. Uh, Independent of COVID rules, there are compelling reasons to do that because of the indoctrination and complete garbage that goes on in too many of our school districts. Our kids are barely taught to read and write and do math at grade level. Uh, They are taught woke politics. um, And now their health is literally being put at risk by the forced mandates of both vaccines and masks. And I hope parents stand up against it. I know there's been a called walkout for this coming week, and I hope parents keep their kids home, choose to homeschool, find a private school or a charter school that shares your values, and no longer subject your kids to the tyranny of government schools. Exactly. Mark, great to be with you again. InformedDissentMedia.com, uh, InformedDissentMedia.com, and uh, send us some feedback. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.